Hello, Courtney. Hi, Greg. So we're here today recording this intro a few days after we had a chat with Professor John Watson. Yeah, and he was a super interesting guy. I didn't realise that, uh, what's his title again? Um, Is he something executive, of medicine? Yeah, Executive Dean of the Faculty of Mel uh, health and medical sciences. Yeah, no, he's a, he is a very interesting guy. Yeah, and he, he does give us a proper intro to himself, so we won't try and <laughs> repeat go, what he yeah. said. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, he's. If I ever needed a gastroenterologist, I'd like him to be the one. Oh yeah, or like he can recommend someone for me as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, we had a really good conversation with John, mm. and he has a wealth of experience in a range of different areas of health and. Um, different parts of academia, mm -hmm. uh, and he's been a director and a lot of different things. So, yeah, yeah we'll, without further ado, we'll let people have a listen. Sounds good. Just to get our conversation started, would you, would you like to just introduce yourself and, and what your position is um, currently, just for people yep. who are listening? Um, so my name's John Watson. I'm the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences here at the University of Western Australia. Um, I'm also a gastroenterologist, a specialist in uh, gastroenterology and hepatology, and have maintained my clinical practice um, uh, through my um, academic life. <laughs> And uh, just going back to the beginning, you, you're originally from the UK. Whereabouts in the UK? That's right. You can probably tell from my um, <laughs> uh, from my accent. Um, it's funny. Whenever I go back to the UK, everyone thinks I sound like an ochre, and uh, <laughs> over here, everyone thinks I sound like a pond. So I'm sort of I'm lost in the mid Pacific somewhere. I think. Yeah. Um, so we've been here 23 years now, um, and um, so I was born in London, um, but brought up in um, Taunton in Somerset. Hmm. Um, which is in the southwest, um, yeah. near where Doc Martin was filmed. Um, yeah. if you know that TV show. Uh, so it's a beautiful spot. As I went to school there, and then I went to um, Cambridge for university for my uh, first degree in medical sciences, and then I was lucky enough to go to Oxford for my bachelor of medicine and bachelor of surgery. So I went to both universities, um, and then did my intern job in in Oxford and another intern job in Bath. Um, and I decided by then I was going to be a physician. Um, my, um, my boss and mentor was Professor David Weatherall, who was a fantastic um, physician um, and a wonderful man. So um, uh, he, was, um, he was very instrumental in me deciding that I would like to train as a physician and also be an academic physician. So um, he ended up as Professor Sir David Weatherall. He was um, the man who discovered and characterised thalassemia. He was a haematologist, mm. but also a general physician. And um, even when he was very eminent um, towards the end of his career, when I was his intern, he used to do one general medical take a month and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and look after his patients. And he'd quite often ring up and say, oh, you know, what happened to that lady on... 70, did she get to the nursing home? Um, uh, I remember once we had a patient who had, um, who had unfortunately um, come in with abdominal pain and weight loss and turned out to have metastatic cancer. And um, he and his wife wanted to talk to the consultant. So I rang Prof Weatherall up and said, oh, you know, would you mind coming down? And 
So he came down and spent about half an hour talking with them, very gently going through the op options, talking about palliative care and everything. And and at the end, he um, he sort of ducked out from behind the curtain and said, thanks very much, got to rush off now. And off he went. And the registrar said to me, um, do you know who he's kept waiting? And I said, no, got no idea. And he said, oh, it was J.D. Watson from Watson and Crick, you know, who discovered <laughs> So he felt that talking to a patient for half an hour was more important than that meeting. Um, and um, I have, oh, had, he's dead now. Um, Prof. Weatherall died a couple of years ago now. Mm -hmm. I had incredible respect for him and um, his mentorship and example was one of the reasons I became a physician. And yeah, he sounds like a, a fantastic supervisor. Okay, so... So David Weatherall just came up in conversation there with John. Yeah, and I thought, because I don't actually really know much about him and um, John's just said that he's a very important guy. Um, did you have any information on him? Yeah, I did. After our conversation, I went and had a look and he is a really important person um, through the history of medicine. Uh, he's been awarded many awards, um, including the Royal Medal, the Father Gillian Prize and the Lasker Award, which are all very prestigious awards from the UK and the USA. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, uh, he was, as John had said, he's a, he was a doctor, but also a researcher uh, in molecular genetics, hematology, pathology, clinical medicine. And he's, I guess what he's best known for is, is his work in thalassemia, which is a hereditary blood disorder, which involves people having decreased hemoglobin production and this can cause people to feel tired, have pale skin and large spleens and other things which are not too pleasant. Yeah, okay. Uh, and in 2015, just to give people an idea of how important that disease is, uh, prevalence was 280 million around the world, so a lot of people were living with that disease, Yeah. Uh, with 439,000 people having really severe form of that disease uh, and 16,800 deaths. And so his work has contributed to... That th those numbers would be much higher if it wasn't for people like Sir David Weatherall. Right. Um, and I, I did a quick little bit of reading as well um, because he did unfortunately pass away in 2018. Say 2018. Yeah. Um, and the reason why he got interested in that disease is he was doing some work in um, some country before he became a doctor. Yeah. Uh, he did, like, was like doing volunteering work and That's one right. of these people came across, like, across his pathway. But, yeah, I think he was in the army or the, or yeah. the navy or something. And he was like doing blood tests using um, equipment that he'd created himself, so like yeah. car batteries and all the stuff he'd just found around him to try and figure out what was wrong with this person. Yeah. Um, and it kind of all stemmed from that. So it was like backyard slash human science into medicine, which I thought yeah. was a really cool backstory. And then from there he went on to work at Oxford and, you know, yeah. other places and, yeah, obviously practised medicine for a long time. Absolutely. Uh, and by all accounts was a lovely chap. Yeah, that's what it all yeah. says. Yeah. <laughs> um, was medicine something that you always wanted to do or was um, it kind of like a surprise? Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise really. Um, like most of my life has been a bit of a surprise. <laughs> Um, so I, um, always did okay at school and, um, was, you know, pretty good at science and biology and all that sort of stuff. There's no medics in my family. There's a, there's a long tradition of doctors, children becoming doctors, which may or may not be a good thing. Um, but it tends to happen. Um, so my mum was a nurse, um, and my dad worked for the Admiralty. Dad was in the army, uh, sorry, in the Navy in the second world war and then came out and worked for the Admiralty as a civilian. 
after doing his degree at University College London. So there, there wasn't a tradition of medicine. Um, but I got called into my headmaster's study when I was at school. And he said, Watson, I think you're good enough to do medicine at Cambridge. And I said, oh, thank you very much, sir. And um, so that was my careers conversation. <laughs> um, and uh, so I applied and, and was lucky enough to get in. And I sort of vaguely thought that it would be an interesting thing to do. And, you know, um, I, I'm blessed with a sort of active inquiring mind and I have a very low boredom threshold. So I thought, well, maybe this is something I can do. So, you know, that uh, it sounds a bit um, uh, facile really, but that's actually what happened and that's how I ended up doing it. And and I suppose if I'd got into Cambridge and then Oxford and decided that that wasn't the direction I wanted to go, I could still have moved in a different direction, but it was harder then. So I graduated, I went to university in 1983 and it was harder to change careers. I think there is much more flexibility now in terms of people starting in one direction and moving elsewhere. So, so that's my story. Mm. And you've ended up specialising in gastroenterology. Yeah. Uh, yeah so well, that happened, that happened. <laughs> and also, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> yeah. oh, well, um, guts and livers um, is what I say to people when I meet them. So <laughs> everyone gets to us eventually. Um, so gastroenterology is the study of the gastrointestinal tract. So that includes um, the upper gastrointestinal system. So esophagus, stomach, and small intestine, the lower bowel, the colon, uh, and also the other digestive organs, so particularly the liver and the pancreas. So it encompasses uh, all sorts of different diseases, including problems with ulceration, problems with inflammation, inflammatory bowel diseases, things like Crohn's disease and colitis, liver disease, so viral liver disease, uh, liver cirrhosis, autoimmune disease, uh, pancreatic problems, um, malignancies, so cancers in the liver and the pancreas and the stomach and the bowel, um, and um, also nutrition uh, is increasingly becoming uh, a subspecialty within, um, within gastroenterology. Mm-hmm. Um, so after I was at Oxford, I went to London. I went to the Hammersmith and to Queen's Square, which are two of the, the big teaching hospitals in London. And I didn't do gastroenterology then. I did um, at the Hammersmith, I did renal medicine, uh, which is kidneys, and I did respiratory. And then at the National Hospital in Queen's Square, um, that's one of the world's centres for neurology. Uh, and my boss was a guy called Kevin Zilka, who was a little round man who, um, whose family ran the Zilka Bank which is a big Egyptian bank. So he was, um, he was a millionaire and drove a Bentley and had a Harley Street practice and came in and did his rounds with me. So we used to get these patients flown in from all over the world and, you know, for opinions and they'd end up seeing little old me and <laughs> then I'd present them to Dr. Zilka. So it was a great um, training and a great experience. And then I went up to Newcastle in the northeast of England um, onto the rotation there and did cardiology and intensive care um, and then gastroenterology. And I got to gastroenterology and I thought, oh, these are my people. This is where I need to be. Um, and I quite often say that to the medical students because quite often they'll come and say, you know, how did you know what you wanted to do and how did it happen? And, and there are some people who decide that they want to be a neurosurgeon from the age of four and, you know, stick with that. And that's great. But there are quite a lot of us who are relatively undifferentiated. And I quite often say to them, you know, one of the things about medicine is that you get to dip your toe in the water quite a lot during your training and also after you graduate. So medicine's a bit different to other professions in that when you're an intern and a resident, you can do different jobs in different areas. 
So I always say to them, you know, you should really take advantage of that. And whilst part of it is about the acquisition of knowledge, part of it is actually talking to an anaesthetist or a radiologist or a gastroenterologist and saying, you know, what's your day like? What do you do? Why do you do it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I, I did, went to Newcastle and enjoyed gastroenterology, and then I got on very well with one of the professors there, and she said, um, would you like to apply for an MRC research fellowship? And I'd already decided that I wanted to be um, or would like to try and be a clinical academic. So I applied for that, and it was in hepatitis C um, because that was a virus that had only just been cloned. So it's cloned in 1989, and we were applying in 1991. Um, so it sounds a long time ago for you guys, I'm sure, but shows you how old I am. Um, and um, and it was very sort of sexy at that stage. You know, it was very early on in the development of the virus. So we were lucky enough to get the fellowship, and I did a three-year PhD. Um, so we were poor as church mice during that period, and we had both of our children, and my wife was furious with me because, um, you know, my friends were all um, growing up and becoming specialists and moving into practice, and there I was in the lab doing my PhD and saying, oh, I think it'll be all right. And she was saying, you know, this is a disaster and we don't have any money and what are we going to do? But, um, you know, she was very supportive and we did it as a team and um, it all worked out. Yeah. And so what, just briefly, what did come out of your PhD then? What did you... Um, So we were looking at a number of things related to hepatitis C. So there was quite a lot of molecular work. We took um, particular parts of the gene out, um, the core and the envelope proteins, which is very interesting now because it ties into the work I'm doing with COVID um, in the present day. So it's interesting that you do things and 30 years later, there is still some relevance. So we were looking at the immune response of people who've been infected with hepatitis C to the core and the envelope proteins and how that affected their disease. You know, if you had more antibodies, did it mean that you got less severe disease and that sort of principle. Um, We also did a treatment trial for an early drug called ribavirin which is a European-wide trial, and um, that um, for a while together with interferon, that was the treatment that we used to use for hepatitis C, but that's been superseded more recently as treatments have improved. Um, And we did a big epidemiology study with the Red Cross looking at about two or 300,000 donated units of blood to try and get an idea of the prevalence in the community. Again, very similar to some of the contact tracing that people are talking about now with COVID because when hepatitis C infects people, often it's asymptomatic. So often people aren't aware that they've got the disease. But if you're not diagnosed, then over a period of time, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you can gradually um, develop, some people can develop uh, liver problems. Yeah. And are there any particular populations that you found that are more affected by hepatitis C than others? Um, well, it's it's mainly transmitted by blood to blood. Um, so certainly when I was doing my PhD, a big population were people who required blood products. So there were people who'd had to have blood transfusions in the 1980s or people with immune deficiencies who'd had gamma globulin or various um, other um, products because, of course, at that stage, they couldn't test for the um, for the virus. So that, that was a big group. Um, but it happens in any groups um, where you can potentially have blood-to-blood uh, transmission. Um, all blood donations get tested now, so that's much less common. But uh, And as I was saying before, the, the treatment options are much better, but there's never been a successful vaccine developed for hepatitis C, despite yeah. the fact it's been around for 30 years. 
That doesn't bode quite well for the COVID stuff then. <laughs> if you haven't managed to get the vaccine for hep C oh, 30 well, years later. Yeah. Oh. yeah, I know. Well, hepatitis C is a different virus. It's yeah. what's called a flavivirus, so it's an RNA virus. So um, coronavirus is also a, um, COVID is also an RNA virus, but it has a slightly different structure. The thing about the hepatitis C is it mutates constantly to stay ahead of the host immune response. Mm. So those envelope proteins I was talking to you about change very rapidly, um, which is one of the reasons that we've never been able to successfully develop a vaccine. Now, there are some similar issues with COVID, um, but the you might have heard people talking about the spike proteins in the um, in the media, um, which had come off the envelope, and they t- seem to be less variable than, um, for example, the gly- glycoproteins that exist in hepatitis C. Um, having said that, we don't yet, unless you live in Russia, we don't yet have a successful vaccine for um, <laughs> for COVID. You might have heard that Mr. Putin released one two days ago. Yeah, yes. I have heard that. It's interesting. apparently had it, um, and good luck to them. You know, maybe it's working well, but um, uh, there are some ethical issues around that in terms of uh, rapid release into um, into clinical practice, perhaps before the appropriate phase three studies have been done. All right, so. We thought that we might cover a little bit of information just about viruses um, because obviously a lot of this conversation is based around viruses um, and John's just brought up something called the protein envelope within a virus uh, and this is something that surrounds uh, COVID but also I think the hep C virus as well as a bunch of others as well. So I just thought that we might go through a little bit of that and it took me some time to research this because viruses is not not my area of expertise. Um, so as I said, COVID has this like protein envelope and the protein envelope is a way of categorising viruses uh, in terms of their structure. So some have this envelope and some don't. And this envelope is essentially like a little capsule around the virus that can protect it. Now, I'm sure some of you have probably heard with COVID that you can get rid of it by washing your hands with soap or using um, organic solvents, alcohol and even dry heat. And that's because of this envelope around the virus. Uh, So this is like a, this is a fatty layer around it. So solvents like what I just mentioned can actually get rid of that. But that's also the reason why it can get into humans because this fatty layer can fuse onto our cells and then the virus can do its action and kind of get into our cells and give it the DNA, RNA, whatever it is. Um, so it's actually a really important part of COVID and Hep C. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and of course, um, alongside you doing a lot of research into this, I mm-hmm. went and did some myself uh, because the idea of an RNA virus came up in our conversation as well. Yeah. Um, now viruses seem to be more complicated than we I first imagined. Oh, um, they, yeah, they're crazy yeah. complicated, yeah. <laughs> so there's a thing called the Baltimore Classification System. Oh, God. Uh, and they differentiate viruses into seven different types. And it's based on how they're made up, what they're made up of. Um, so RNA stands for ribonucleic acid. There's also DNA viruses, which I'm going to try and pronounce this. It's deoxyribonucleic acid. 
That's it. So these are the two main components of different viruses. Some mm -hmm. viruses just have one of these and some have a combination of both. Yeah, and I'm just going to split in, I'm going <laughs> to split it here. That's a pun. Um, RNA is half of DNA. Right, okay. So they're very much related. DNA is like the full um, double helix structure, whereas RNA is kind of like half of it. Half so, of it, okay. Yeah. That's good to know. Um, so, yeah, to give you some examples uh, RNA viruses include the common cold, the flu, obviously COVID-19, which came up in our conversation, hepatitis C, polio and measles, just to name a few. Uh, and the thing with RNA compared with DNA viruses is they generally have higher rates of mutation. And so what this means is it makes it difficult for you to treat and to come up with a vaccine because you come up with a vaccine for it and then it mutates into something different. Changes the shape, basically. like a game of chasey. Yeah, and so that's why we've got literally thousands of labs running mm. trials and trying to develop vaccines right now. And they probably COVID. have all different types of COVID as well, like all slightly mutatedly um, different. And I think they've actually recorded that, like, over the past few months, is they've had um, subtle changes in symptoms. Yep. So like length of, length of the symptom and all that kind of stuff. So that will be the virus mutating. That's right. And, and the time that the virus might be able to survive outside of a host, outside of a body, for example, you know, yeah. on, a, on a hard surface or something, that seems to be variable as well. And recently, New Zealand has unfortunately just had another cluster of cases mm -hmm. which have come up after 100 days. <laughs> yep. And they are testing the virus to see if it is in fact a different strain to the first time oh, okay. round when yeah. they had first had the virus back in uh, in March, I think it was. So it's going to be interesting to see as these laboratories keep records of the viruses that they're finding, you know, how they've changed and what the mm. structures are. And obviously with COVID-19, you know, we've had access to samples for other viruses for a long time, like polio and measles. And, and they just chill so, out and stay the same. Yeah, so we know, we, well, th those ones can change as oh, well. Yeah, but that's but true. because we've had the benefit of many, many decades of research, mm. we understand them well, whereas COVID, we don't fully understand it yet. And so mm. I think that's, you know, why we, we need to be a little bit patient, but obviously Definitely. keep working at it. Yeah, there was, there was one other thing as well that I found to be interesting. So this is also part of like the evolution of viruses. Um, but one of the questions that came up in my head was why, if uh, viruses that have this envelope, this fatty layer, just immediately get destroyed whenever they come into contact with dry heat, which happens a lot in, in a lot of countries, um, soaps, which also uh, occur naturally, and then organic solvents. Why do they even have it in the first place? Um, why don't they all just not have the envelope and survive that way? And the reason is these uh, fatty layers around the virus protect them from our immune system. Okay. Yeah, so that's like the evolution of why we have these envelopes in the first place around these viruses. So yeah, some of them won't have it, which means that our immune system can attack them, but some do, and therefore they're technically protected against our immune yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just evolution. That's right. In its simplest form. Yep. Yeah, and that, that does raise concerns about the procedure of conducting trials and, and the importance of phase yeah. three of clinical trials. Absolutely. Um, which they yeah. seem to have skipped phase three, I think. Yeah, Russia. well, they haven't released, I mean, nobody knows is the answer because they haven't released um, most of the studies around the world, including the Oxford Group and um, some of the drug companies in the US and, and some, some of the people over here as well 
have been pretty good at releasing all of their data and their trial results as they go through the different phases. Um, we don't know very much about the Russian data. Uh, we know it's an adenovirus-based vaccine, which is one particular way of delivering the the, um, the uh, proteins to stimulate an immune response, but we don't know much more. There's also talk of a Chinese vaccine, which is already being used in their military as well, but we don't know very much about that either. Mm. So it's very interesting at a sort of sociolo sociological and global level. Um, you know, the race for vaccines is a bit like the race to get to the moon. <laughs> uh, you know, if I can sort of use that analogy, and um, the Russians put up Sputnik in the late 1950s, and then Kennedy announced that America were going to be first on the moon, and um, and they were. Um, but I thought it was very interesting that Putin had called this vaccine Sputnik Five. So that's a very, <laughs> oh, that's a very strong uh, resonance with um, with the previous space race. Mm. Yes, it like if, evokes memories of Star Wars. I think it was that America. <laughs> Exactly. Back in the day, the USSR as it was then. Yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to butt in here because I, I have like a question that is a bit of a tangent along the yeah. lines of vaccines. And I was talking to Craig about this uh, probably a few weeks ago. Something that I don't quite understand about vaccines is whether there's any long-term effects because with this whole COVID thing and then also um, all the previous other vaccines, you know, there's all of these trials and testing, things like that. But with COVID... It's such a short time period, so we don't know any of the long-term effects. And I'm wondering whether that's going to influence anything that happens and whether other vaccines actually have these long-term effects that we don't know about. Yeah, that's a very good question, and that's probably an hour-long medical student lecture. But cool. I'll, I'll, try, <laughs> I'll try and do it in, a, in a, less than an hour. Um, so the first thing is that all viruses potentially can have longer-term systemic effects, so not just covid but if you get Epstein-Barr virus, which causes glandular fever, or if you get hepatitis C or Hep B or adenoviruses or Coxsackie viruses, there are lots of different types of viruses that in quite a lot of people, particularly with adenoviruses and Coxsackie viruses, for example, give most people perhaps a little bit of a cold or a bit of a flu-type illness, or influenza is another example. Um, however, in some people, the initial disease can be much more severe, and influenza is a good example of that, and COVID is another good example. Um, and there are already reports emerging that some people who are infected with COVID seem to get a longer systemic reaction to the virus. And that's probably your immune response to the virus. So uh, we, don't, we don't know that much about viral kinetics yet with COVID because it's such a new virus, but it seems that most people um, get the virus. They uh, are infectious for about 7 to 14 days, then they get rid of it because they mount a successful immune response. There are isolated examples of people who seem to have it for longer than that, which is more similar to Epstein-Barr virus. Um, as you probably know, if you get glandular fever, you've often got EBV forever, just in your system, but low down. Um, and um, the chickenpox, the varicella virus, is another good example of that, and that's why you get cold sores. Um, but most people don't get that with, um, with COVID. Um, even if they've got rid of the virus, there are some people who seem to have longer-term effects, and that may be related to the immune response that that's turned on. So coming to the vaccine, um, most vaccines are very safe. 99-plus percent of the time, people who are vaccinated do very well. There are a small number of people who get small local reactions or um, systemic responses to vaccines. And, for example, the adenovirus vector, which is one of the vectors that people are using uh, which is a relatively harmless virus, 
that they're getting the proteins of the COVID virus into the body so you can mount an immune response. So they're not giving you COVID, but they're giving you little bits of COVID. Um, uh, there are some examples where people get fevers and chills and a bit of a flu-like illness for a day or two, but that tends to go away. Um, so uh, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying there's no treatment, including <laughs> vaccines, that are 100% uh, safe. Yeah. Um, but the the risk benefit ratio with most vaccines is extremely high. So smallpox is another good example, or anthrax. You wouldn't get, want to get smallpox or anthrax. And most <laughs> of us would accept the very small risk of of having those vaccines. Yeah. That's why coming back to the previous discussion that we have to have phase three trials in yeah. vaccines. However, because things can look good in the test tube, they can look good in a small number of people. But if you then vaccinate 100,000 people and find out that 1,000 of them have quite significant side effects, you might then say, okay, well, even though this gives us a good immune response, we probably can't use this in the market because the, um, you know, the, the side effect profile is too high. So we're going to have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. So fast forwarding, you, you've joined UWA recently. And yes. staying yeah. on the theme of COVID, you, you've been involved in the response to COVID-19 in Western Australia, is that right? That's right, yeah. So uh, two things arrived in February in Western Australia, me and the virus. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I signed up for this last um, last November. Um, there's there's a gap in my career between Newcastle and um, and coming here. So do you want me to <laughs> fill you in with those with that? Yeah, why don't you do that quickly and then we can move on. Before yeah. we get to UWA. Yeah. Uh, so I did my PhD. I finished my gastroenterology training in the UK. Um, we were lying on a beach in Crete, me and my wife, um, and decided that we probably should leave the UK. We were getting very disenchanted with um, the National Health Service. We had... Um, two small children and we thought we would try Australia. So we sold everything and came on a year's temporary visa, which was madness really. But, um, and we didn't know anyone um, except one friend in Melbourne, but it was fantastic. And I came to Ballarat initially uh, on an area of need migrant visa. Um, and um, even though I'd had a relatively academic career, I'd done my PhD. I've been working on the liver transplant unit in Newcastle. I'd um, done, you know, the Oxford and London jobs. Um, it was actually very good for me to come to Ballarat and work full-time in clinical practice because I saw a lot of patients. I learned a lot about general medicine and gastroenterology, and it was a fantastic training, and I had some, some very um, supportive colleagues um, across um, the different medical specialties. And we made a life in Ballarat, and um, we only had to stay for a couple of years, but we actually ended up staying for seven because, you know, the kids went into school and we made friends and... Um, and that was great. Um, I'd always thought that I might want to work in a more academic environment longer term. So in 2005, the opportunity came to go to um, head up liver services at the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle in New South Wales. And so um, I went there and was more involved um, with the research and the teaching and obviously my hepatitis C work. And that was great. Um, and then a year later, Deakin opened its medical school in uh, Geelong. And I, I had a phone call and um, uh, they said, you know, do you want to come back and come into practice and do a bit of Deakin? So I went to say, I said to my wife, well, I've had this call and she said, we're going. Said, would, you like to, um, would you like to think about that? And she said, I have, we're going. So she's English as well, but had put down a lot of roots in Victoria and was keen to go back. So we went back 
And I went into practice in Geelong, but started doing more work at Deakin um, in terms of the new medical degree, initially some casual teaching and involvement uh, with assessment. And then in 2011, I became the clinical school director, which is the equivalent of the clinical dean. And then in 2014, I became the dean of medicine. So um, it wasn't really, um, we talked before about how things happen to you, and it wasn't really a sort of super strategic plan. It was just um, taking opportunities as as they arose um, and um, making a, a leap in the dark and, um, you know, um, and going for it. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Um, so I did that for six years and, um, and really enjoyed it. Um, but I think all leadership roles have, have a lifespan. And um, I got to the end of my second three-year term in uh, Deakin and was thinking that I'd probably step down. And then UWA phoned me up. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, I don't, I don't think I'm your guy. Um, and they said, why? And I said, well, you know, you're a group of eight research-intensive university and I've done a PhD and I've done some clinical research, but I've done a lot of clinical practice and so I can bring you clinical practice, I can bring you networking, I can bring you leadership, um, I can manage researchers. I've set up a research institute at Deakin, but I'm not going to bring six NHMRC grants. And they said, well, you know, why don't you apply and see how it goes? So, <laughs> so I did and was um, lucky enough to get the job, um, mm-hmm. uh, which was great. So I signed up in November last year, little realising what was about to happen. That's, <laughs> you know, probably the same with all of us. Mm-hmm. And um, and so um, came in February, um, and um, obviously a lot of our time has been about dealing with the pandemic. Um, you talked before, Craig, about um, uh, the COVID research response, which I've been very privileged to be involved with, um, but also in terms of the university's response to the pandemic and um, mobilising the faculty to get everything on online, um, make sure that our wonderful students get looked after, make sure our staff get looked after because it was a very difficult, confusing and scary time for all of us. So, but I guess that's what leadership is. You know, you can't predict things and stuff happens and leadership is not about predicting. It's about how you respond to events Mm -hmm. and how you manage that. And I tried very much to be a calm, measured voice of authority as much as possible when everything around us seemed to be crumbling into, you know, catastrophe. Um, so I did quite a lot of stuff on on the ABC and on media and in press releases from UWA and everything, and, and that was good. So in terms of the research work, um, there's been a number of different projects from, from our um, UWA researchers. Um, my particular area, which we were uh, very kindly funded by the WA government, was around establishing um, a database, uh, what's called a REDCap database on the UWA system, which is where um, you, some of you, uh, your listeners might know about REDCap because it's a, a sort of clinical database system where patients who come in, their details can be downloaded onto REDCap and then um, and stored. And also establishing a biobank around the samples of patients who came in bit like, you know, the stuff from 30 years ago, trying to understand why there's such a broad variety of disease mm. states in COVID. So why, um, oh, your lights have just gone out. <laughs> it must be timed. <laughs> um, uh, why, um, you know, why some people get very minor disease and some, some people get much more severe 
or terrible disease in some cases. So, and there's other people at UWA doing various work with, um, you know, plasma infusions and um, immune responses and um, various other things. So, so it's been, um, you know, um, uh, a, a real concerted effort. Yeah, I so you. Yeah, brings it down to the present day, really, I guess. I'd say you'd be thanked for that work probably in 10 or 15 years' time when researchers <laughs> have had a chance to look at things like genetics and... You well, know, maybe... Like, oh, hey, that is relevant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or I can say, hey, we've still got that biobank, and how about mm. we have a look at that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a really interesting and varied journey that you've had, and I think probably one of the reasons they approached you about the role here at UWA is because you do seem to have a real person-centred focus... Um, just in the way you communicate as well as the work you've done over the years and the fact that you've kept your clinical practice current. Um, there's plenty of people who, who have a similar career to you that haven't, that have just ended up full-time in research. So I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah. I'm interest, interested to know how you've juggled that over the years. Yeah, that must be so difficult because there's like two whole complete jobs that you're trying to fit into yeah, one week. Yeah, <laughs> and um, it's a very good question and um, it is a bit like having two full-time jobs. I guess the reason, there's several reasons I've done it. Firstly, I really enjoy it and it's a huge privilege to see patients. And I have some patients who I've seen for, you know, 25 years now. I had someone say to me the other day, she's in her late 30s now and has had a family. She said, you first diagnosed me with colitis when I was 16. And, um, you know, because I still sort of do some telehealth consults. And I said, well, you know, I'm in person now. She said, well, I don't ever want to see another specialist. So I said, well, why don't <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's all of those stories about, um, you know, the wonderful patients that we look after and what a privilege it is. Um, secondly, I think it's very useful being current because one of the things I still do is, is my teaching sessions. So, um, uh, so I do a um, six-weekly uh, teaching session on consenting endoscopy to our um, MD students here. And it means that you're not just the bloke in the office who's giving out orders. You're, um, you're not asking people to do things that you're not doing. Um, so that's very important as well. And, um, and thirdly, for me, I feel very much like a doctor who works in a university. Um, so, you know, I, I, do, I am an academic. I do work in universities, but um, I still very much define myself as a doctor. And um, I don't think that will ever change, actually. And, and so, practically speaking, how do you how do you practice these days? You mentioned telehealth. I mean, do you still work in hospitals, or how, how do you? Um, do that? So, I haven't started yet in WA. Um, I still have admitting rights in Victoria, and I've been back a couple of times to see patients, um, but very much on the understanding that's um, you know consulting and elective work only, and most patients understand that. And of course, I I know most people in Western Victoria now in terms of um, the medical specialists. So. If I've always said to my patients when I'm passing them on, you know, if you get admitted to hospital and the doctors want to call me, then I'm very happy to, to help and offer advice. Um, will, will I be able to start something here? I would hope so. Uh, I haven't yet managed to because of the pandemic. Um, uh, you, can't, you can't do a job in the university at the level I'm at and run a full-time practice in terms of emergency care and call and stuff because... You know, you can't have someone with a bleeding gastric ulcer in the emergency <laughs> department while you're chairing faculty boards. So, yeah. so there are some limits on the practice that you can do. Um, so um, I no longer do um, a lot of therapeutic interventional procedures. I still do gastroscopy and colonoscopy, but as I say, I don't do core and everything. 
And the other thing that's really important is that you have to stay current. So you have to do enough days in a year to make sure that you're happy with your um, practice and that you're uh, not having too many complications and problems like that. So I do audit my practice with the GE Society of Australia to make sure that my polyp detection rate, my complication rate, all of those things are, are up to standard. I used to also do a procedure called ERCP, which is um, stands for endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, which is good for Scrabble. Um, and um, you, it's where you go down with a tube and you put a little tube up into the liver and the pancreas. Um, and when I became the dean at Deakin, I, I agonised about it for quite a long time because it took me ages to learn how to do it. But I, I was only doing about 20 a year of those, whereas I was still doing about five or 600 colon and gastros. So I, I gave that up. Um, and actually, that was the right thing to do because... As I said before, you need to make sure that you're within your scope of practice and doing enough. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I've really answered your question. Um, uh, it is tough. Um, <laughs> you have to commit to it. Mm-hmm. it. It is very hard work. Um, both of them sort of bleed into each other. So if I'm seeing patients and I happen to bump into the professor of surgery and we have a 10-minute conversation, that's not really clinical time or university time. It's mm-hmm. just time. Yeah. Um, so the two of them do tend to inform each other a bit, I think. And just in case you had any spare time, you you also act as a director as well, don't you? Oh uh, yes. So uh, I have done been on a number of boards actually, um, which has been interesting, and it's it's taught me a lot um, about governance and leadership in a different sort of way. So so the jobs I've had within universities have been operational. So as an executive dean now, I'm almost like a chief operating officer or something like that. If you view the, the vice chancellor as the CEO, then mm-hmm. I'm probably the CEO of the faculty. So that's yeah. quite operational. So I run, you know, budgets, HR, uh, strategic management, um, enrollments, research, all, all of the stuff that is within a, uh, a portfolio. Whereas if you sit on a board, your role is government governance and oversight. So you have to have a very different hat on if you're a board director. Um, So I was chair of the National Centre for Pharma Health um, when I was at Deakin, which is in Western Victoria. Um, I was on the board of the Postgraduate Medical Council of Victoria. I'm now on the board of the QE2 Medical Trust as part of my role as Executive Dean. So, So I think all of those roles do teach you different things um, whilst they sort of interface with um, uh, healthcare. Um, They're about looking at organisations, looking at structures, understanding strategic change, understanding leadership and giving advice. So so for me, it's been very beneficial because it's given me a different approach to to the management of organisations. Which of those three boards were your favourite one to be on? (laughs) (laughs) Um, probably the National Centre for Pharma Health because I was the chair, so I could make the yeah, rules. Exciting. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm being facetious, but no, I enjoyed the National Centre for Pharma Health because it's such a good organisation and it's so important. And rural and regional health, of which pharma health is part of that, is is a real Cinderella specialty in medicine. So all of the glamorous stuff tends to happen in big metro centres, but mm-hmm. it's really important to remember that there are people doing it tough. Um, with poorer disease outcomes all across this country of ours. And um, so that really allowed us to shine a light into those areas, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the medical training landscape in Western Australia has changed a fair bit in recent years with new medical schools coming yep. online. And so 
presumably the number of medical graduates, um, doctors being produced is, is increasing. What's your view on that? And do you think that's going to make life more difficult for people practicing medicine here? Or do you think it's just going to have to change the way, you know, people, people's expectations, maybe it's the um, way they might work or. Yeah. Um, good question. I've got a couple of observations there. So you're talking about Curtin. So initially UWA was the only medical school in town. And then uh, a while back, Notre Dame introduced their graduate school. And now Curtin is a, an undergraduate, um, I think, five-year medical degree. So their first graduates, I think they're three years in now, possibly, or four years. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, so their graduates will start coming out probably end of next year or the year after. Um, one of the things that, well, the first thing to say is that from the workforce perspective, um, the Postgraduate Medical Council has guaranteed that every intern, every graduate from a WA medical school will get a, an intern job. Um, so there will be enough jobs. Um, you might not get your first choice, but that might be a good thing because you might end up somewhere that surprises you and you have a great experience. Um, uh, so that's the initial perspective. Um, more hospitals keep getting built. Um, more doctors keep being required. So there's been quite a, um, uh, even in the second half of this year, for example, we've been involved in some discussions around possibly our final year medical students stepping up as medical assistants because WA has not been able to take in some of the junior doctors that they often take for a year or two who come from places like Ireland and South Africa and the UK and various other places. So, so there's clearly still a workforce need. Um, that workforce need is often stronger in rural areas, as I was talking about before. So I think there's enough jobs to go around. Um, the other observation I was made I would make is I've been struck by how expectations have changed amongst um, graduates compared to when I was graduating. So when I graduated, medicine was very much a binary thing. You went in, you worked 80 hours a week, and that was the way it went. Um, and um, nobody really asked your opinion. And that was probably not a great thing, um, although obviously it was a great privilege. Um, uh, I've been struck by the number of um, younger graduates who are very focused, quite rightly so, on lifestyle choices. And that's not just the women who are graduating, it's also the men. So I have quite a few of the young men who come and see me and say, you know, my partner and I are thinking that we're going to start a family in five years' time, and I'm thinking I'll work two days a week and she's going to work three days a week, and, um, you know, what careers do you think we should do? So, um, so it's very apparent that people are thinking about those lifestyle choices, and that's probably a very good thing. And it's the sort of discussions that we never, never really had. Um, so I think that plays into workforce planning, because if people are making different lifestyle decisions to what they used to 20 or 30 years ago, uh, we need to be mindful of that in terms of the number of people who graduate from Australian medical schools. Mm. Yeah, and Australia is one of those places that does rely on immigration for, our, for a lot of our population growth. So presumably the next couple of years at least, we're going to see a, a fall in that and we yeah. are going to need our, our locally produced graduates. Yeah. To well, we graduate about 3,700 medical students per year and 10 years ago it was about 2,700. So it has gone up locally. Um, and with Curtin and also Macquarie coming online, that'll go up to about 4,000 um, by about 2025. Mm -hmm. And are there any specific um, opportunities that you envisage for UWA's medical graduates? Um, 
Well, I think um, the thing about medicine um, is that it's such a great career, and I guess I'm an example of that. So uh, you don't have to have this notion that you go into a job when you're in your late 20s and you come out the other end when you're 65. I, I think if you do a degree in medicine, you can become a clinician, you can become a teacher, you can become a leader, you can work for a non-government organization, you can go overseas, you can do research, you can be a politician, you can be an advocate, you can be all of those things. Um, and I guess perhaps I'm a good example of that because I've been a bit of a restless spirit and have had a number of different um, careers during my 25 years um, since I graduated, don't know, 31 years now. Um, and um, it's all been fantastic. And uh, the opportunity to do a number of different things for me has been um, amazing. Um, so I, I think increasingly um, we hope to give our UWA graduates the opportunity to be great researchers, great leaders, great clinicians, great communicators. We, we don't know what medicine's going to look like in 20 or 30 years' time. If I think of how much it's changed since I graduated, it's changed beyond all recognition already. So God knows what it's going to be like in 2050. But what we have to do is give them the tools to be good doctors. And by that, I mean a thirst for knowledge, lifelong learning, ethical practice, uh, very high quality communication skills, and an understanding that the patient is front and centre of everything that we do. Do medical students have to do some, some form of uh, research component? And how many of these students do you think would continue doing research during their medical degree and internship and yeah so way. in our in our md at university of western australia and actually in most medical degrees across australia now there is a, a research requirement um, which includes both research training and a supervised research project now it's important to bear in mind that that's limited and you're not going to split the atom and publish in nature <laughs> from, you know from the research that you do when you're a medical student um, but I think, uh, I mean, I guess I'm biased because I'm a clinical academic, but I think even if you decide that you want to be a hardcore clinician for the rest of your life, having a, um, uh, the opportunity to dip your toe in the water and do a little bit of research training makes you a better doctor because it helps you to understand, you know, every time you go to a medical conference, every time you read a paper, every time you think about, you know, a new drug being brought to market, it means at least at a very um, limited level, you've had an understanding of research um, to improve your medical practice. And of course, for the smaller number of people who end up going into a career like I do, it's the first step towards then perhaps doing your PhD or your master's or becoming a clinical academic. So, um, so I think it's beneficial for all. You sort of touched briefly on a couple of philosophies of medical practice before with some of your comments. Uh, is that an area of interest for you, given that you are in, involved in, in training doctors of tomorrow um, and philosophy does drive the way society develops and evolves over time? Yeah. Are there, are there any specific parts of that that you'd like to talk about? Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, I think there's a strong connection between medicine and the humanities. So you often find that doctors are really good musicians. Um, so I'm the lead singer in a covers band, for example. I'm not oh, a really good musician, exciting. but I enjoy music. And I was a choral scholar when I was at Cambridge. Uh, so there's a strong link between medicine and music. There are some doctors who are great um, literature buffs or novelists or historians or artists or, you know, there's that strong link. And maybe that's telling us something about the medical brain. So maybe 
the, the old cliche is medicine's an art and a science, and that's probably true. Um, so maybe that tells you something about what it takes to be a good doctor. I think at a philosophical level, we've touched on it already in terms of how we prepare our graduates for the future. What we have to do is make sure that we continue to emphasize the importance of <clears throat> uh, empathetic practice, holistic care, good communication, and also team-based care in terms of respect and professionalism for the colleagues that we work with. So um, one of the things that's changed is, um, is this thing. Um, I'm holding <laughs> up my iPhone um, in case um, this is recorded rather than filmed. Um, so to a certain extent, when I did medicine, the acquisition of knowledge was one of the key parts of medicine. Now, it's still important to have those um, building blocks of knowledge. So if you're in a cardiac arrest situation, you don't want to be turning on your iPhone to work out whether you should inject lignocaine next or adrenaline. Um, but the acquisition of knowledge has now become different. So what we need to do is encourage our, our doctors to be lifelong learners um, because to a certain extent, you can get most knowledge and anyone can get knowledge from the iPhone. Um, now, a lot of it out there is, is good quality, but there's a lot of rubbish out there as well. So what we have to do is encourage our doctors to still be leaders and to help guide our patients and give them the, the informed information that they need to make informed decisions. So I feel like what you're saying is that although we can look at WebMD or Wikipedia, we yep. should still ask someone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that, that's my advice. And if I'd had $10 for every time a patient had come in and said, you know, I've been looking at the internet and what you need is dried monkey testicles from <laughs> Poland or something. And, uh, and you know, me saying, well, you know, that's a very interesting idea, but here's what we do for this and here's what I would recommend. It's very much, uh, and that comes back to communication skills. Every patient wants something different. There are some patients who say, you know, don't talk to me about it, doctor. I just want you to do the colonoscopy and that's fine. We have to respect that. At the other end, there are patients who want to know everything and every possible complication and every possible option. And, and we have to respect that as well. You know, I completely get that. And most people are somewhere between those two. So part of good medical practice is um, picking up those cues from the patient and having very strong people skills. Um, you have to be you have to be a social chameleon. You have to be a different person to each patient that you see, mm -hmm. um, because every patient wants something different from from you. And that's that's the art of the medical consultation. That's what you don't get from WebMD. You know, mm -hmm. why is this patient coming to see me today complaining of abdominal pain? Do they really have abdominal pain, or is it because their business has just gone bankrupt, or because their wife's left them, or something else has happened? You know, what do I need to know about their life so I can help them to move on to the next step? So there's all of those areas that occur in good medical practice. And when, when people say, oh, you know, I've got a really good doctor, they don't generally mean, oh, he's someone who can take out or she's someone who can take out an appendix in seven minutes or who knows all the branches of the brachial plexus. What they mean is they're a person who sits down with me, they listen to me, they understand me, they give me options, and they communicate well and involve me in the decision-making process. That's what most mm. people's definition of a good doctor is. So do you think that that has had an effect on how universities decide who can get admitted to the medical courses? Because when I was in high school, there was a real emphasis on the hard sciences, physics and chemistry and mathematics and those sort of things. And obviously it was the, the really top of the top students that, that got considered for medical degrees. Do yep. you think that that's, that selection criteria has been broadened a bit to take into yes, those uh, schools? Uh, 
I think it definitely has. And um, certainly when we were at Deakin, we actually changed our scoring process such that the interview score made up half of the total scoring for, um, for admission and offers of the medical degree. And we did some internal work and we looked at the GAMSAT score, the grade point average and the interview score and how that predicted your performance during your four years of the medical degree. And interestingly, your interview score was by far the highest predictor of success, mm-hmm. um, which surprised me. And I thought it would be GAMSAT or grade point average. Um, and I was surprised that nobody else was surprised because they all said, yeah, we know this. And so I said, well, why aren't we changing it then? So so previously we'd done 33% for each mm-hmm. GAMSAT GPA and interview score. And after looking at that internal data, we went to 25, 25 and 50. Mm-hmm. Um, so that meant that someone who just sort of squeaked into an interview um, could then move themselves up into the top rank if they did a really good interview and then, you know, would be offered a place. Um, so I think um, I can't speak for all medical schools, but my philosophy is that um, it's very important. Clearly, you need to be, um, you need to have a knowledge base. You need to succeed well at school and in your first degree. And you know, we want, we have a duty to society. We need to make sure that the people who we graduate are able to do gastroenterology or radiology or pathology or whatever they go into. Um, but it's very important also that we make sure that those other skills around the, the hardcore, I think you called it, um, bi- biomedical or biochemical knowledge is, is there as well. Yeah. And so with that in mind, obviously you've, got a, um, you've been practicing for a long time and you would have come across a lot of different um, people and a lot of different specialties practicing medicine. Do you notice a generational difference between the doctors who graduated more recently compared to those who may have graduated you know, decades ago? I think that's probably a, an overgeneralization. Okay. I mean, I'm an old bloke and I, I can talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there is a general a generational difference, as I was saying to you before, in terms of uh, life work balance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and that's not just medicine. I think people are more conscious of that in society in general. Um, uh, the other the other issue, of course, is that um, uh, far more um, women are now um, in medicine and are now moving quite rightly into leadership positions, uh, both clinically and and elsewhere, and um, and that's taken some time. Um, so that's a generational change that that is occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other thing that we're focusing on is um, rural and remote uh, social accountability coalition uh, disadvantage and also um, opportunities for Indigenous students to enter medicine and to graduate. And um, as always, there's more we can do in those areas, but medical deans of Australia and New Zealand have been very focused on those areas and very strong advocates. And, and UWA, I think, does, does pretty well at that, um, but we could do better. There's always more we can do. Yeah, that's pleasing to hear because that's a mm. really gaping hole in our yeah. society yeah. at the moment. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. yeah, because you have to, you know, if you've been brought up in Kalgoorlie, you know, I can't walk in their shoes. I don't know what it's like to live in Kalgoorlie. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've been brought up and you've done really well at school, you should absolutely have the opportunity to do medicine if that's what you want to do. Yeah. And I guess one thing where the, the UK has a bit of a head start on us is is in the space of nurse practitioners. Yes. Because um, they, yeah. they, they've shown to be really effective at, at handling people's uh, medical issues. Um yeah, something? I think that comes. Yeah, that comes back to interprofessional learning and um, interprofessional practice, which is something I sort of touched on it earlier on, but it's something that's really important for our medical students to understand. So, 
we talked before about generational change. So my practice now, if I'm if I'm doing a round or doing ward service or something, it's very much more of a team-based effort um, or a team-based approach where the doctor, the nurse, uh, the physiotherapist, the dietitian, possibly the occupational therapist and the social worker would all, if necessary, talk about a patient, decide on what's best for their care, and everyone would bring different areas of expertise to the table. Mm. So that's been a generational change as well. And the nurse practitioner model is is part of that. Um, so in my specialty, gastroenterology, about um, two-thirds of UK hospitals now would have at least one nurse, nurse endoscopist, mm-hmm. uh, whereas that's not very common in Australia as yet. And I think um, at least one thing that I think has changed recently as well in terms of medical practice is um, at least while medical students are learning, there's now a public health component as well. So they're not just looking at like, specific patients but they do get that public health overview um, meaning that they understand like burden and prevalence and incidence and all that kind of stuff as well so Mm. is that relatively new I'm pretty sure it is but not Um, sure I I, I wouldn't say it's new but I think it's probably more emphasized now so when I was at Oxford Sir Richard Dole was one of the professors and he was the man who very famously produced the first report linking smoking to lung cancer of course Mm. so that's Mm-hmm. a great example of population health having an influence at a population level. Um, but I think there is now quite rightly increased em- em- emphasis on disease prevalence, disease outcomes, uh, relationship with socioeconomic status, um, and, um, and I guess population health has been thrust into the limelight with the current pandemic and mm. all these um, um, people who ended, who became chief health officers have suddenly become superstars without, um, <laughs> without really real, realising it and, and we hang on their every word. So, so I think that's a great example of how that raises the profile of population health physicians and it demonstrates to us how important that is. Mm. We're probably nearing the end of our, our chat, John. Is there anything else you wanted to cover before we finished up? Um, I don't think so specifically, just that um, it's been a great privilege to do this for 30 years. Um, touch wood, I'm hoping to do it for at least another 10 years. Um, I've really enjoyed um, my time as an academic and my time as a, as a clinician. And um, I would encourage people to um, uh, firstly to think about doing medicine, but secondly, to um, if you graduate in medicine, to understand how many different careers and opportunities you have during your life. Excellent. I think your your career is testament to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been like a whole windy road of opportunity. Absolutely, <laughs> a good windy road. Yeah. Yeah. A bit like a colonoscopy, really. A windy road of opportunity. Yeah. Interesting uh, comparison. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's probably a great note to finish on. Um, oh, it's great. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah. Thank uh, you so much for allowing us to have this conversation. It's been really okay. interesting. Yeah. All the best. So that was our conversation with Professor John Watson. Courtney, I thought it was a really good chat. I thought it was a really interesting chat as well. I feel like I've, I've learned a lot about viruses and COVID and he answered my question about long-term effects of, of vaccines pretty well as well. So, yeah, mm. very, very interested. Yeah, and we, we really appreciate him being so generous with his time. Absolutely. Uh, he, is stuck, he, ha- he was stuck in a hotel isolation when we spoke to him. 
yeah. and no doubt his calendar was full of appointments. <laughs> you could hear meetings, the little so. beeping noises throughout the, the interview. Yeah. <laughs> now, Courtney, if people want to get in touch with us, how can they get in touch? So we are on Twitter at uh, healthmeanswhat, so you can always tweet us with questions or whatever. And we also have an email that I never remember. What is our email? So it's meaningofhealth at outlook.com. I really should remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, um, I'm sure you will in time. Oh, eventually um, we'll see. <laughs> and another little thing which we don't haven't mentioned much is that if you like hearing the episodes and you enjoy the content, then wherever you listen to your podcast, if you just give us a quick rating and review us. Yeah, definitely. We would love that. And yeah. um, if you have any feedback as well, yeah, email us. Any Get in touch. Any things you want us to talk about too, that would be amazing. Yeah. We'll look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Yeah. Thanks for listening. All right, bye. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.